Warning, this episode contains spoilers, strong language, and a lot of fish. If it's something that's really well done the first time, it's not broken, stop trying to smash it. I'm always intrigued to see what it is that people are going to do with something that's already been done before. I hate remakes. I love remakes. Okay, welcome everybody to the third episode of I Hate Slash Love Remakes. I am Noel, and joining me as always is Evie. That's a lot of fish. <laughs> We're going to be hearing that a lot today, aren't we? Oh, God, yes. And in fact, you can just take that, and anytime there's silence from my end, just put that in. Just assume that's what I would say. Cut and paste and paste and paste. Paste and paste. <laughs> yep. All right. Anyways, uh, we are here today to discuss the 1954 film Gojira, also known as Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and its 1998 remake simply known as Godzilla. Evie, have you ever seen any of the Godzilla movies before this? I've seen two of them. Was one of them the American remake? Yeah, one of them was the 98 remake. And the other one was Godzilla 2000. Oh. Yeah, those are the two that I had seen. I'm like, yeah, they're pretty. Oh, I'm glad I got out of the franchise by then. I guess I am the Godzilla nerd of the episode. Between junior high and high school, I've watched probably two-thirds of the series. I was never really a fan of the original series that ran from the 50s to the mid-70s because it really got fucking silly. Like alien apes coming down from space with their giant mecha Godzilla. You had weird cartoony parodies of detectives running around. You had rapidly deteriorating rubber suits. You had every kind of monster puppet you could think of. They were just silly and stupid. And I didn't really start to love Godzilla until I got into the what is called the Heisei era from 1985 through 1995, where they essentially rebooted the entire franchise and just pushed all the old sequels aside and just did a direct sequel to the original and then built an entirely new series after that. And what I loved about this era was not only that it looked amazing, I mean, probably some of the best giant monster suits and miniature cities you will ever find are in these movies, but because they actually took it seriously and they built a continuity around it. And you had characters that would recur and develop over the course of the entire series. And most importantly, you actually had an exploration of how humanity itself as a society adapts to the presence of giant monsters and how they keep increasing their technology. It's almost like it triggers a space race in terms of creating technology to deal with giant monsters and how it's something that kickstarts advancement and how we restructure our entire society in order to cope with them. And it's just a fascinating series. And then in 1995 with Godzilla vs. Destroyer, it actually ended and it had a big finale, Godzilla's big, huge, epic swan song, and it was fantastic. I love that series. It was a little clunky here and there, but I love that series and I will not apologize for it. And then the remake came out and as much as I enjoyed it, that was my end of my Godzilla fandom. Godzilla 2000 had aliens. Yeah, see, Godzilla 2000 was the first film of the Millennium series, which I know our listener Brian is a fan of and I have yet to watch a single one of them. I've seen trailers here and there. They don't look that interesting. I mean, I'll check them out one of these days. I hear that for the big finale Godzilla Final Wars. They actually brought back every single monster he ever fought because it was the 50th anniversary film. And they even brought in the Godzilla from the American remake to fight the classic Godzilla. Lizardzilla? Well, they just simply called him Zilla. Yeah, Lizardzilla works too. Yeah. So I, I, I'm curious to check that one out just to see how they play that out. 
So I'm guessing you didn't enjoy Godzilla 2000. Yeah, no. It didn't inspire you to go check out more in the franchise? No, it inspired me to want to look for a drinking game that I could partake in while watching Godzilla 2000. All right. What do you say we move on to the original Godzilla? Uh, I think we can do that. Okay, probably the biggest factor contributing to the creation of Godzilla was that in 1952, the United States occupation of Japan came to an end, so they were finally able to do films that explored the bomb and the effects of atomic radiation. And they were a little hesitant to, though. There were actually only a handful of films in the first decade following this entire lift. The most popular of them was probably Godzilla. And a few other things contributed to this. So there was a big successful re-release of King Kong in 1952, a film called Beast from 20. 20,000 Fathoms was released in 1953, which, as we'll get to later, quite a few plot elements were borrowed from. And so Japan decided, why don't we make a monster out of it? And we'll use the monster as an allegory for nuclear destruction. And thus was born Godzilla. Actually, when Godzilla was released in 1954, that would have been about nine years after the uh, atomic bombings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I thought that was really interesting. That would have still been fairly current. Yeah, those are still open wounds. Yeah. Okay, why don't we go ahead and move on to the film itself? I mean, it opens with a pretty typical credit sequence, but why don't we just take a moment to discuss the score? What did you think of the score by Akira Ifukube? Actually, what I noticed about the score is the fact that it was only set to really important scenes. I think it's because with modern audiences, we're so used to there's always something playing. And with this one, it was just like, yeah, unless it's an important scene, there's not going to be music. Well, you know, Hitchcock always had his saying of, why would I want to put music? music on when people are talking because I want them to hear what they're saying. I'm paraphrasing. But yeah, that is something that we're not, we're so used to having music under anything. We're not used to just having these select moments. You would have people having conversations in the house and things like that. And there's no music to tell you how to feel. So you have to figure out how you feel right on your own. I'm like, I like you movie. You and I can be friends. What's nice about this film is he created like at least three good themes that pretty much lasted with the entire series, except for the American remake, which we'll get to. But I mean, like the opening one right here is just this nice kind of driving momentum one where it's kind of has this very old, very large feel to it, but also with a very modern rhythm. And you do get to hear Godzilla in there too. Yes. And do you know how they did Godzilla? Um, was it by dragging a filing cabinet across a floor? No, it was a it was a large bass cello oh. that they rubbed a leather glove along the strings and then actually even went in and then further manipulated that. Oh. And that's actually the word that they've been using ever since. Even in the remake? Except in the remake. Yeah, that's what I thought. The American remake kind of sets itself apart in every way. Yeah. Well, anyways, we open on a fishing boat. A flash from underwater blinds the crew and the boat catches fire and sinks. You know what? I like the opening, but holy cheap effects, Batman. Like, <laughs> you can just kind of see where they've pasted on. It, my explosion is pasted on. Yay. Yeah, I mean, I love the shots of the crew just lounging around and then suddenly let's cut to a toy in a tub bouncing on the waters. Yeah. Very obvious miniature effects. And I think it's worth pointing out that right up from the front, we're seeing nuclear imagery in the form of a light that is so bright that the light itself causes a, a ship to burst into flames. If I could just take a moment to di digress here, this is actually loosely based on an incident in the news that would have been very relevant at the time to Japanese viewers. Yeah. In March 1st of 1954, the United States detonated a nuclear bomb on the Bikini Atoll. It was 15 megatons, 750 times more powerful than the bombs used on Japan. 
Japan in the war. It is still on record as the most powerful explosion to have ever erupted on the face of the earth and was much more powerful than expected, partially destroying the majority of the atoll and sending a huge plume of fallout into the atmosphere. The plume drifted across the Atlantic and the atomic ash rained down on a Japanese fishing trawler called the Daigo Fukuryu Maru, and I'm hoping I didn't mangle that. When the fishermen started to get ill, they returned to shore, and six months later, the first died of radiation-induced leukemia. Five others would die in the coming years of similar contamination. This is a very stark and ballsy thing to have put on the screen less than a year after it happened. Yeah. This would be like doing the destruction of New York like six months after 9-11, you know? I mean, you have to give the Japanese credit for actually taking this terrible tragedy and just saying, we're going to face it head on. Mm-hmm. We cut to a courting young couple named Ogata and Emiko. They had a date planned for the night, but he's captain of a salvage ship, and the Coast Guards call him out to help search for the missing boat. Is he captain of a salvage ship? I thought he was like her dad's assistant or something. No, no, he runs a salvage company. Okay, can I just say how much I love Emiko? She's so cute. She's cute. She's a, a little overacting, but you know, that, that was kind of typical in Japanese cinema at the time. You know what? If you watch some of the old films from just old Hollywood ones, people overact in those too, so. Yeah, it's very theatrical. Guy playing Ogata is Akira Takarada, who would appear in five additional Godzilla films, the last of which was the 50th anniversary release, Godzilla Final Wars. And he appeared in all of them as completely different characters. And Momoko Kochi, who plays Emiko, she actually kind of fell out of cinema for a while because she, well, geeky fans kept hounding her because she was in Godzilla. But she did come back in Godzilla vs. Destroyer, which was the big final epic, actually reprising the, the character of Emiko. Aww. My problem is I don't really know who these characters are that they're suddenly introducing us to. Though it is very interesting how Japan is, was a very conservative society and still kind of is in terms of premarital relationships, unless you look into their porn. <laughs> and here we have a woman who's not married to him who's in his apartment while he's not wearing a shirt. Anyways, a massive search effort is undertaken and another ship bursts into flame and sinks. I actually quite like the kind of documentary approach they're taking in the way that they use stock footage. And, and a lot of this story is told through montages. Have you noticed that? Yeah, but it works. It does. I like it because it actually gives a sense of scale and a sense of, of this affecting the broader society. I also just love the name of the boat, Bingo Maru. Yeah, I'm like, where did you guys get those names? And they're just awesome. Please name everything. Yes. So officials are being flooded for answers by the public and the families of the crewmen. I actually really like how they have this entire bit of, you know, people want answers from their politicians and the politicians can't give them anything because they don't have a clue what's going on either. You get kind of the sense of humanity from the families. I'm like, they act like people who have actually lost family members. It's not just I'm acting. Yes, and they want answers and they're angry at the people who aren't giving them answers, but the people can't give them answers because they have no clue what's going on either. It's a very real and honest way of doing it. And the thing is, the people talking to them are trying to be really diplomatic without saying, we have no clue what's happening. Exactly, because they can't. That's <laughs> just not how they're trained. Three of the survivors are rescued by a fishing boat from a small village on Odo Island, but before it can get back to shore or answers can be heard, the boat itself is destroyed in the same way. Speculations begin to spread about a mine or an underwater volcano. I love the reference to mines because, you know, they probably still had them floating up on the beach at yeah. the time. I mean, it was ten, less than 10 years since the war ended. 
The people of the fishing village, afraid to take any more boats out, lie in the shore to watch the sea. They rescue a survivor who floats in on driftwood. He's the older brother of a young man named Shinkichi. And I have no idea why this kid Shinkichi suddenly becomes like a major player throughout the rest of the movie. Hell if I know, but he's a really good screamer. <laughs> Dana Segal. Hey, that kid's got pipes on him. Yeah. Yeah, I love him and the old guy yelling simultaneously about the boat. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love how when they get to the survivor, they just leave him face down in the water for half a minute before then <laughs> deciding to turn him over. That's usually what I do. Anyways, we get to the village elder. I loved him. He was awesome. Okay, he's played by Kokuten Kodo, who was a regular actor in the films of Kurosawa, and he's probably best remembered as he was the village elder in Seventh Samurai. Yeah, no, I did not know that. So as the fishing boats return to sea, but they return with empty nets. The elder starts tossing around the name Godzilla, but the others brush off his superstitions. Nothing good ever comes of making fun of a village elder's superstitions. I love that he's kind of like the guy in, you know, the jaw, like if it's in Jaws or Piranha or something like that. He's the guy who knows. They're that, coming. They're coming to get us. Yeah, it's like he's the guy who knows what's going to go down. And everyone's like, ah, crazy old guy. He's Krusty Pete, the town loon. <laughs> he is. And I'm like, he knows. He knows shit. Okay. Anyways, a helicopter arrives with soldiers and reporters. Uh, they interview the survivor and he tells them about a large creature he saw, but they're doubtful. Of course. Really? Because, you know, if someone was like, large creature, I'd probably just be fine with it. Well, I mean, you know, if you think of all the possibilities that could sink a ship and then sink another ship and then sink a third ship and then I think sink some more ships by now, I think everyone would be a little wary of saying it's a sea monster, don't you? Yeah, I would just say it's a big pony. It's a dagger pony. It's punching holes in our hull. Yes. That night, the villagers conduct a ceremony to try and appease Godzilla, which we learn was a legendary monster of the sea who fed on humanity. Actually, he fed on young girls. Yeah, they talk about sacrificing young girls in this movie. It's like, well, if only they had thrown Emiko out there, we could have ended this entire film. Yeah, it's just like, you know what? I mean, I know she survived to the end, but if you had just fed her to the monster, you all would have been safe. I'm surprised there wasn't like a, a scene of like the crazy old guy trying to drag a woman down to the beach to sacrifice and then the rest of the town sets on him. You know what's weird is he just suddenly kind of disappears. He's part of the committee that appears on the hearing board when they go to the city. I think that's about the last time we see him. Yeah, but you know, that's what I kind of like about this movie is no character really sticks around any longer than they need to. True facts. It gives you a, a larger scope, a larger sense of scale as more and more people play parts in it. Mm -hmm. Later on that night, a nasty storm rolls in. It's too dark to see what, but something massive stomps through the village, destroying homes and killing Shinkichi's family. I bet it's Donkey Kong. <laughs> well, you were talking about his screaming. He is a good screamer. Yeah. I actually really like that shot where he's just laying there in the mud and the rain, screaming at his house. It's just been destroyed and everyone's trying to hold him down. Brother, brother. And the thing is, his brother's just like, you know, stay inside. And he's the one who goes and runs outside. Well, his brother, by the time he saw what was coming. Yeah. And I actually love that they had that interior shot of we see the house coming down from the inside. Mm -hmm. As they just huddle on the floor and everything just comes down on them. Uh, but then again, we have some really bad models. You know what? I'm willing to give this movie all kinds of slack because it was an old movie and that's what they had to work with back then. You know, with the destruction of the village, I'll give you, but not the helicopter that blows over. Oh, that one's obviously a toy. That heli it just and then and then in a later scene we actually hear that the helicopter was crushed from above. No, it was blown over by the wind and the rotors popped off. <laughs> you know what? Maybe Godzilla came out after and crushed it. You never know. 
Oh, we didn't talk about the reporter. There is a reporter that's introduced in this bit who kind of carries on through the rest of the film. And, well, you know what? Maybe we should save him for when we get to the American cut, since a lot of him, I hear, was replaced by Raymond Burr. Yeah. He's kind of our eyes and ears for the audience, just kind of giving us a way to look at the situation without really doing anything about it. The reporter and representatives from the village bust down to the city and appear before a council where everyone agrees that it was a large animal of some sort that destroyed the village. Finally, everyone believes them. If they had only thrown Emiko into the water! Famed paleontologist Kyohei Yamane takes the stand and says there's a lot of mysteries left in nature and asks for the formation of the Odo Island Research Party. Yay! And this is Takashi Shimura, who was probably the top character actor in Japan today. He was like the Morgan Freeman of Japan. Japan back then, and he starred in many films in the first half of Kurosawa's career. He was the lead samurai in Seven Samurai. He starred in Ikiru, a fantastic film about a guy who learns he's dying of cancer. Just a fantastic actor. Yeah, no, I kind of got that vibe from him, because I'm like, when we get to that one scene, like, he's so good in this. And he was a hugely respected actor back then, and so him showing up in a film is the equivalent of, like, Morgan Freeman showing up in a film, or Michael Caine showing up in a film. It it suddenly gives it a little more credential. Yeah. Doesn't always mean the film's good, but it makes at least people a little more willing to check it out. But anyways, we instantly know he's a scientist worth listening to because he cites Bigfoot footprints as evidence. And he also wears glasses. Okay, the research party is formed and they all set off on Ogata's handy salvage ship with Emiko joining Professor Yamane, who's revealed to be her father. (gasps) So shocking. It's like suddenly all of our characters are working together. (laughs) Emiko becomes her dad's research assistant. Ogata, hey, he has a ship handy. We can rent out that ship. (laughs) It all works. It all makes sense in that magical way of cinema. Oh, God. Are are we going to get to Eyepatch? So yes, anyways, Emiku waves to a mysterious, intense man with an eye patch, who we later find out is Dr. Daisuke Serizawa, who's actually been betrothed to Eriko since they were both young. Oh, eye patch. I love that they say that he was, like, mangled in the war or something, or disfigured in the war. It's like, eye patch. I'm like, he's unattractive to one side! <laughs> He was originally supposed to be much more heavily scarred, and in fact appears so in in early promotional photos, but they figured just let his performance capture the haunted, damaged quality. You actually can see some scarred skin underneath the eye patch too. Yeah. But I love when you see eye patch, and I'm like, eye patch! I bet you'll be important later, eye patch! Should we just call him eye patch from now on? Yes, please, because that's what he's called in my notes. You know, what I love is that there's this great bit where everybody is holding these long streamers as the boat goes away that they're pulling out. And here you cut to Eyepatch, who's just standing there oh so dramatically and stoically like he's getting a prostate exam. <laughs> and he just has this little roll of streamer on his finger that's unfolding. It's He's so serious, and yet it's so colorful and fun. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene because I'm just like, on the one hand, you know... He's so creepy and pathetic at the same time. You're kind of just like, who are you? Like, if you saw him walking down the street, you'd be like, where's my pepper spray? Yeah. Well, anyways, he is played by Akihiko Hirata, who would appear in five additional Godzilla films, as well as the sort of unofficial spin-offs Mothra and Rodan. And again, as with the other actors, he played completely different characters in all of them. Sadly, he died at age 56 of lung cancer, just as his career was still going on. And he had plans to appear in more. Aw, sad. But what was interesting is he was actually originally cast to play Ogata. Really? But then they decided that he would be better for the more intense character of the Doctor. That's got to be a diss to whoever was playing the Doctor at that point. They're like, you're not intense. Oh, there wasn't. There wasn't. Oh, they didn't have anyone. Well, actually, the guy who ended up playing Ogata tried out for the Doctor. Oh. And anyways, they just figured it would be better to just swap him. And I think it worked. 
Yeah, it's not the first time it's been done anyway, so. Yeah, I don't know that I could see them in each other's roles. Yeah, but again, you don't know. Because Hirata has this intensity that he brings to Eyepatch to show show his deep emotions through that eye patch. While having a prostate exam. <laughs> Seriously, look at him. He's just, he's like sweating and flinching and just, he's like having these internal spasms that he's trying to fight down as he's just holding that little streamer roll. Okay, but later on when you find out what he's been doing. I know. We find out that he's been betrothed to Emiko, who is dating Ogata. Thus, we are introduced to the melodramatic love triangle that is the club that constantly beats off my attention when I watch yeah, this movie. Yeah, I bet it beats off your attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, this movie gets fun and exciting, then romantic triangle, no. I hate this love triangle. I don't know why they felt the need to put it in there. I'm like, did we need this? Well, originally it was supposed to be that Ogata was simply her fiancé and then the doctor was just a separate character. So why'd they add in the romantic? Because as we'll get to in the in the finale, they wanted to make him more, more dramatic. Ah, that's a lot of, like, I'm like, that's... To be honest, though, you know, in thinking about this, you know, they've already gone through this whole convoluted way of trying to get everybody on the same boat going to the same place. Why don't you just have it be that she's been engaged to the doctor but then she first meets Ogata for the first time when they rent out his boat to go to the island and starts falling for him and then that's a relationship that builds and, and we actually see that see her starting to get that conflict and instead of just having it be that oh she's already been kind of seeing both guys. I don't know that she's been even seeing Eyepatch that much. Well she's been betrothed to him since they were teenagers but yeah. Yeah. So anyways, while investigating the wrecked village, the research party learns that the local well has become radioactive and that large depressions in the ground are actually giant footprints. In one footprint, Professor Yamane finds a fresh prehistoric trilobite. I love how they tell the professor that everything is radioactive and then he reaches into the water and then when they tell him he should stop doing that, he goes and does it some more. I love that when they're like, it's radioactive, don't do that. And he kind of like is like nods at them and goes, I'll make you doing that. And they're like wearing their rubber hazard suits and he's just sticking his bare hands right in the radioactive water. Okay. I will say though that the radioactive thing, they keep doing that throughout the movie. And I'm like, I like that that wasn't just a one-off thing that they're like, and now we drop it and don't care. Exactly, that they continue to acknowledge that that's a continuous problem, and that's something that he's always going to leave behind. Yeah, whereas opposed, you know, when we get to it, we'll see. Talking about then. Alarms clang, and everybody runs up to see Godzilla's first appearance over a hillside. He roars a bit, everyone screams, and then he goes away. Our introduction to Muppetzilla. Shut up! He scared me! I had to hug a cat! I couldn't believe how many shots of Godzilla in this movie are a freaking rubber hand puppet with these little rubber arms sticking out to the sides. It's Muppetzilla. Shut up! Muppetzilla's awesome! I No, okay? It's been black and white, and a lot of times they use a lot of shadows when it's supposed to be at night. It works to their advantage. It's Lamb Chop wearing a mud mask. Do you even want me to go into the remake right now, Noel? Because I will. It's Muppetzilla. Muppetzilla rocks my socks. <laughs> I like him. Okay, fine. You like Muppetzilla. I, my problem is he just feels like a hand puppet. He moves too quickly and too jerkily. He's, he's a hand puppet. He, there's no sense of size. There's no sense of weight. It's a hand puppet. Yeah, but he's supposed to be like a prehistoric dinosaur thing. Yeah, but when you cut to the rubber suit, it's heavy and it has weight and it moves slow. And then you cut to the hand puppet and it's moving at normal speed as someone's whipping their hand around like a Kermit flail. I didn't really bother me that much. 
Okay, but I, I love how everyone goes and grabs their rifles and farm tools and samurai swords as though they'll be able to do anything against this monster. Yeah. And then we have the moment where Emiko becomes a shrieking damsel and has to collapse into Ogata's manly arms. I love like she trips and it's just like... It's like a romance cover pose, yeah. Yeah. Hun, you can just, you know, get back up on your... Right. No, okay. But again, I think this is a scene that would have a lot more impact if these were two people who were still just meeting instead of people who have already been in a relationship. Exactly. I like the final shot of where we're looking down on the beach and you see the footprints and the tail mark that have dragged off into the water. That's pretty cool. It was a matte painting, but it was a good matte painting. Yeah, I figured as much, but I'm like, but it looked cool. During a hearing before the press and politicians, Professor Yamani reveals that Godzilla is a prehistoric creature, a missing link between land dinosaurs and sea dinosaurs, who was living quietly in the ocean depths until nuclear testing chased him to the surface. It's a good enough explanation for me. Yeah, I'm like, no wonder he's pissed. Yeah, I love how they have to specify, though, that it wasn't Hiroshima or Nagasaki that woke him up, it was testing. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, here's my problem is that just looking at Godzilla, he is not built for deep sea living. He doesn't have gills. His eyes are all wrong. Why does he have hands and feet instead of fins? Why is his tail the way as he is? Why didn't all that radiation kill him? Well, because he's effing huge. It's still going to kill things. I always figure that it was him walking around having radiation poisoning, and that's why he starts stomping on everything up top of the food supply. That it's making him sick and Yeah, angry. he's pissed off because he's like, ow, I'm in pain. I'm going to stomp on all your buildings now, bitches. Actually, that makes me think of uh, in Godzilla vs. Destroyer, which was like the big finale to the 90s series. Godzilla has actually gotten to the point where he's going into a nuclear meltdown and, and he's just roaring in pain. He's got these glowing cracks forming all over his skin. It's like the radiation is finally eating him. It's finally consuming him. It's actually that you're interesting that you're pointing that out here for the first film. Yeah, I always figured that's what it was because I'm like, there's no way that he could have been exposed to something like that and just walk away from it like, oh, well. Yeah, that, no, but that is a very good point. And it's it's worth pointing out that they never mention why he comes up to the surface. It's not like he's trying to eat things. That's actually a very good point, that he's probably just in pain and is just going on a rampage. Yeah, like they don't even try to surmise why he's up there because they're not really sure they can guess at it. But And then anyways, we get to a nice big scene where the politicians start arguing about whether or not to censor this story from the public. Yeah. I love the exchange. The truth is the truth. Well, that's what makes it such a delicate matter. I love that. I'm like, wow, Fox News that early, huh? Yeah. And hey, female senators back in the 1950s in Japan. That's pretty good. And I love that she totally owns that guy. Oh, she does. She she totally breaks that guy down. Yeah. I was like, wow, dude, don't piss her off. 17 ships have been destroyed by now and the government forms the Counter Godzilla Task Force. I love how they use montage in order to shorten the amount of time, and you get the sense that this entire film is taking place over the course of several months. Yeah, they use montages, but I don't even really notice the montages until I'm thinking about it after. Right, it's quite seamlessly worked in. Yeah, whereas, you know, other times, I've seen, like, how many movies where they have montage, and you're like, and it's a montage. I mean, here's the thing, Uh, Yushiro Honda uh, was working as an assistant director up to the late 40s, and his first few films were documentaries. He'd only done a couple of actual feature films between those documentaries and this, so it was definitely a style that he was familiar with. We have this great scene on a train where we just have these people just kind of cynically joking about contaminated tuna and bomb shelters, which again would have been very relevant to Japan of the time. You know what? It's a really odd one-off scene. But it feels like an honest man-on-the-street scene, you know? Yeah. That's what I love about this film is it kind of covers every aspect of the society. Yeah, you do. You get like the higher up intellectuals and you get everyone, I think, more or less. 
Yeah, they kind of cover everyone. And, and it's not really like in blanket statements, like not all the politicians are bad, not all the military are making mistakes. It kind of covers every angle. Yeah. So anyways, we get another montage of the military shooting off a bunch of depth charges. And this is kind of where we get to the main military theme of the score. And it's this is the only part of the score I never really liked because I always thought it was a little too upbeat and kind of shrill. Mm-hmm. But that might just be because the sound quality is a little tinny from the old recordings. Yeah, that could be it. Because I don't think that's probably what it was intended to sound like. At least I hope not. But I mean, it's worth saying that that was another one of the themes that they carried on to other films. Mm-hmm. So anyways, we get to the point where Professor Yamane is depressed because he doesn't want Godzilla to be killed. That scene, him sitting in his study, I'm like, it's like the last days of Dick Nixon in there. Yeah. It was, that is such a good scene. It is, but you know, here's my problem with his view. I mean, how many people have been killed by Godzilla now? How much contamination has been left behind? At some point, you gotta say, you gotta put this thing down. Yes, but he's still a scientist. But you can still study it. Yes, but to be fair, it has yet to actually go stomping on major cities yet. Yes, but it's destroyed 17 ships worth of people and destroyed an entire town. Yes, but clearly he doesn't care about that. But it's not until it gets to the city that people care. Well, yeah, because he doesn't live in that little town or on one of those ships, so he pretty much, it doesn't really affect him that much. Well, anyways, this is the first time that we see that Shinkichi, the boy from the small village, is now living with the professor, because I'm guessing the professor adopted him or something. Yeah. I read somewhere that he was supposed to symbolize the war orphans, who were just kids who were left homeless after the war that other people took in. Oh. It's just interesting how it's like he just shows up, and he's just there, and it's like, okay, I guess that means he was adopted. You know, I just went with it. I was like, yeah, sure, he's here. Whatever. I mean, it's not something I'm complaining about. It's just odd how they just kind of just jump over. Like, they don't have a scene where he, where like on the island after his family's been destroyed, where the professor goes, don't worry, we'll take care of you. But I don't know, maybe that's just me thinking through the eyes of Hollywood. I don't know. Silly Noel. You know what? I'm thinking even the doctor sitting in his study all last days of Dick Nixon and just he could be very conflicted in the fact that he knows that the dinosaur or that Godzilla needs to be destroyed, but that he wants to study it. I think he just doesn't want to accept that something this rare and precious is a danger. Yep. Silly, silly man. But that is such a good scene. And the first time I watched that, I thought he was actually going to kill himself. He was playing it that good. I was like, holy crap, is he going to kill himself? Takashi Shimura, man. Fantastic actor. There's so much weight in just that scene. I was like, crap. So anyways, a dance hall ship is the first to spot Godzilla off the coast. And I love these people on the dance ship. They are so adorably dorky. Yeah. Glasses and their bobbed hair and their dance into the pop music. They're so cute. It's like, oh, honey, look at you. I love how they've been drawing out the appearance of Godzilla. We still haven't seen him full figure. I mean, we saw his legs initially, then we saw him from the head, shoulders up, and now we're seeing him from the waist up. And what I love is that he doesn't destroy the ship. He's just popping up to get a look at the territory and then popping back down. <laughs> I just wanted to be like, oh, hey, you guys, what's up? Just looking. He's scouting out the territory. He's like, hey, man, you want to throw in that Springsteen tune? <laughs> All right. I'm going to rock my way to sleep tonight. <laughs> Hey, ladies, how you doing? Oh, you all, you all got guys? All right, that's cool. Don't worry. I'm just going to be over here if you need me. <laughs> I want to see that movie. Yes, the lonely Godzilla looking for a date. Steph came up with an awesome one when I told her about the nuclear testing ruining its habitat and food supply. And she's just like, I just see Godzilla there like, my petunias! They wrecked my weed, man. <laughs> You 
just want it to be like Godzilla in a, like a Cheech and Chong movie. Yeah, it's like Godzilla with a headband and the smoked out shades. And it's just like, you don't wreck someone's weed, man. <laughs> don't wreck a brother's weed. That's not cool. I'm angry. You got a sandwich? <laughs> We're like writing the best movie ever. <laughs> yes, it, it's casual Godzilla. Or let's say he's Garyzilla. Godzilla's laid back brother. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, man, Godzilla, why you gotta be all angry all the time? Chill out, man. Dude, don't eat people, man. That's not cool. Eat a shark. Save a life. <laughs> you know what? Godzilla doesn't actually eat people. Not in this first one. Yeah, Toho had the rule that Godzilla will not eat a human. They kind of broke in the remake. Oi. Which doesn't entirely make sense. Why wouldn't he? I mean, I know they don't want to villainize him at all. And in fact, when he was first, uh, when he first appeared over the hill, the original shot had him with a bloody cow in his mouth, mm -hmm. which looked like a little plastic cow with red paint on it. Aww. They said that was too violent of an image, so we had to go back and do it without. Well, yeah. We strayed completely off the dance hall boat. <laughs> Mellow Godzilla did it. And then you can just picture Godzilla with his own little hand puppet Godzilla just talking to it. <laughs> hey, little hand puppet Zilla, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How you doing? <laughs> I'm going to rampage. Oh, yes, you are, little Zilla. <laughs> Look at me. I'm flailing about. Woo! Oh, everybody run. It's hand puppet Zilla. <laughs> I want this to be a movie so much. Why is it the that would be great where we find out that the Godzilla that keeps attacking cities is just this giant hand puppet on the arm of a bigger Godzilla who's just snickering below the water. It's like, they're so totally freaking out, you guys. They're tripping, man. They're tripping. <laughs> and then he's like looking at an octopus. Dude, check this out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyways, officials asked the professor for his thoughts on ways to kill Godzilla, but as we know, he wants them to focus more on ways in which we can keep this miracle alive and study what it is that keeps the miracle alive. Which, if you're right, isn't anything keeping him alive. He's just being poisoned to death slowly. I think I am, because I'm smarter. What I don't get is his line of, Godzilla absorbed massive amounts of atomic radiation, but he still survived. What do you think could kill him? Well, you know, surviving radiation is different than surviving exploding projectile weaponry. Yeah. So I don't, I don't understand how that makes him invulnerable to missiles and stuff. Yeah. They never quite explain this in the series. He's just always invulnerable, except when he gets knocked over by another monster. Um, really thick scales? Yeah. Uh. In our next scene, because we absolutely needed some more romance, Ogata is moping around because Emiko still hasn't broken the news of their relationship to Eyepatch. And I wrote in my notes, and I'm going to quote this verbatim, I don't care. I so fucking don't care. I hate this romance. I know. It's just like... Everything just grinds to a halt whenever these three are on screen. It's just, stop it. Stop it. It's like reading her diary. It's like, dear diary, I have feelings for him, but I don't want to hurt the feelings of the other man. What do I do? I don't care. It just keeps going. I'm like, shut up. I don't care. The other guy makes you warm in your nether regions, go with him. The eye patch guy is nice, but he creeps you out. So be his friend, but otherwise stay away. Go with the guy you want to sleep with, honey. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> They're both good guys. Well, one's really good and the other is... Kind of creepy. So our reporter friend convinces Emiko to score him an interview with Dr. Sarah... Sarah with Dr. Sarah's... To score an interview with eye patch. Yeah, we were calling him eye patch. What the hell? who's exploring a way to kill Godzilla, 
but the doctor refuses to say anything about it. I actually like this. There's a, there's a nice moment here where the reporter talks to him about uh, some comments from some scientists in Germany, and the Japanese scientist instantly locks up saying, I don't know any scientists in Germany. Yeah, what are you talking about? Never even heard of Germany. What's Germany? Sounds like a kind of cake. <laughs> I hope it's chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. So, when the reporter leaves, Eyepatch offers to reveal his research to Emiko. They go down to a basement lab filled with doohickeys and fish tanks. Oh, and also beakers. And beakers and whirly things and pipes with steam. He drops a small metal ball into a fish tank, turns on some noisy neon lights, and we don't get to see what it does at all. It just cuts away and Emiko reacts in horror, but she agrees to keep the experiment a secret, the experiment that we didn't get to see. I don't understand why they had to drop a mystery right in the middle of this. It's like, we don't care about their relationship. Let's add another level to it. I think that they figured people would care, and so they were like, and so we'll add suspense to it, and I don't know. Dun, dun, dun. I don't know. I have no idea. Otherwise, I think it's a good tense scene. I, I, I like the anxiety and intensity in Sarazawa. Like, it's like inviting a girl into his bedroom for the first time to show her his comic book collection. Is she going to think this is cool or is she going to be freaked out by it? I don't know, but I should do it. Yeah, except that when he shows her, there was no way she was going to think that was cool. Yeah, he's not getting laid that night. No. I just love the sense that he knows he's discovered something quote-unquote amazing, but that he's scared of it. He's discovered Paris Hilton? Maybe he found her underwear. Ah! Well, because Lord knows she doesn't know where it is. Mm, I went to a really unhappy place. So Emiko returns home where everyone is sitting around awkwardly until they hear Godzilla's arrival. Yay! What I don't understand about this scene is why is Ogata staying at their house? It's like he's staying in the house of the girl he wants to ask to marry him, but he hasn't asked the father yet if he wants to marry her because their relationship is a secret and yet he's living in the same house with her. And I don't know. I don't, why is he in their house just there? I don't know. She says something about the kid and giving him his lessons. So I'm like, I don't know if he's tutoring the kid. It's never really said why he's there. He just is. <laughs> it's like the kid. They're just there. Yeah, you know, I didn't even question it when it would happen. I'm like, sure, he's over there. What the hell? Anyways, Godzilla has arrived, and the city is getting trashed left and right. Evie, what did you like about this sequence? Everything. It made me so happy. I love you, Godzilla. I know it's become a cliche, but you have to admit the shots of people running in the foreground while this giant monster is just devastating the city behind them is really, really striking imagery. And you know what? I know it's a guy in a suit. I'm not going to pretend it's not a guy in a suit, but the, the way that they do it with like the shadows and, you know, there's not a lot of light on him and it's in black and white and everything. I'm like, it works. I go with it. There's a slowness and a weight to it that gives it this gravity. And, and the music is perfect. The bah, you know, it's just like these giant footsteps just slowly creeping up on you. It really looks great. I love the roar. And I love the bit where the scientist tells the soldiers not to use lights so they turn on their lights. Yeah, I'm like, scientists. I love the scene of the train, especially how we cut to the everyday people within, and then we see them screaming in the wreckage, and it's just, it's horrific. I mean, that's what I love about Godzilla in this film, is he is a nightmare. He is hellish. He is something that is just going to leave your entire city wasted and destroyed. Well, anyways, uh, this one had him destroying the bridge, and I don't understand why he just goes and just decides to destroy this bridge for no reason. It was in his way, Noel, okay? 
I mean, cutting a path through a city is one thing, but to just kind of instantly go over, I see that there, I wreck you. Fucking bridge. It's not like the bridge kicked him in the shin or anything. <laughs> oh my god, you just used the... The bridge didn't do anything to him, Logic. Yes. <laughs> Fucking bridge. It was, just a, it was just an innocent bridge. <laughs> it wasn't hurting nobody. I like Godzilla. He smashes nicely. He does. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a really well-done sequence. The miniatures are actually really good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think this is like the only Godzilla film I can think of where the people are smart enough to run to the hills. Yeah. And they actually go and they're just standing there on the hills watching the city get destroyed. Usually everyone's just still running around blindly. Here it was like, to the hills! You know what? At least they're smart enough. Yeah. I mean, because this isn't a stupid movie, so it doesn't treat its people like idiots, except for the people in the middle of a romantic triangle. Yeah, they're all morons, but everyone else. But they're only stupid within their romantic triangle, otherwise they're fine. That's true. So then after the Godzilla destruction and he's walked away and he's gone back down into the waters, the bureaucrats, with the help of international bureaucrats, come up with the idea of limited evacuations and a giant electric fence. So then cut to a montage of soldiers and people scrambling, tanks and trucks driving, science and industry assembling the massive fence. I love as soon as they have the electric fence up, I'm like, aw, that is so cute. All I could think about when they did that was the old Ren and Stimpy sketch. Don't whiz on the electric fence. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought it too. I was like, aw, you're so cute, movie. You think that'll stop him? Ogata thinks now is the perfect time to ask Professor Yamane's consent to marry Emiko. But the professor is depressed because of the plan to kill Godzilla and the two men get into a fight about whether or not that's a bad idea. Can somebody please give this professor a swift kick in the pants by now? Yeah, and dear romantic subplot, I don't care anymore. But I love that this is the time that he thinks he should ask. It's like, you know, we're all under attack from Godzilla. Can I marry your daughter? The city's been destroyed. We're building this huge electric fan. Well, I mean, it could have been like a week or two later. You never know. But anyways, it's like, yeah, you know what I've been thinking, Dad? Now was not the time to ask him. The time to ask is when they're in the mellow portion when, you know, Godzilla's gone. That's when you ask. It just doesn't make sense to me that he's still fighting for Godzilla. It's like, did you not just watch him destroy an entire city? The city that you live in, where people that you know probably just got killed because of this monster. Maybe he hates everyone in the city. Oh, that woman at the city council who wouldn't give me that <laughs> permit. Shows her. Yeah, screw y'all, I'm for me. <laughs> So Godzilla arrives again, and not only does he pretty much walk right through the electric fence and shrug off more high-caliber artillery, but he starts exhaling radioactive steam that melts anything it touches. I thought he was breathing ice and fire. Well, I couldn't, I mean, I think it was supposed to be fire, but they were just, he was blowing smoke out of his mouth, essentially. I kind of like that it's, it feels a little more liquidy, in that, you know, it feels like a, a reptile spraying venom, you know? And it's just, it's just superheated venom that melts anything it touches. See, I figured it was that he's blowing cold air. It would be a lot colder than any of us blowing cold air. Right, and it melts everything, so it wouldn't be cold. Well, no, it froze part of the electric fence. It didn't melt that. It just froze it. No, it didn't. Yeah, it did. No, when it started to glow, that was it being superheated. Yeah, I didn't see that. I just saw it getting all icy. Hmm. I didn't see the ice. I saw it melting. What I don't get is why, if it is steam, why that makes the spines on his back glow. It's magic, bitch. I mean, that makes sense if it's fire, which it technically does become in all the later sequels. Yeah. You know what? I just went with it. I'm like, that was my big thing was I'm like, why does it do the thing on the spine? Yeah, you know what? It's magic. I don't care. It makes sense in the later films when he actually is a nuclear reactor that's firing bolts of energy. Mm-hmm. 
and then Godzilla passes past the evacuation zone, more destruction occurs, and it's over 10 straight minutes of Godzilla breaking and burning things. No, 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 I'm just reveling in Godzilla destroying things. It makes me happy. Okay, but anyways, you had this one specific woman and her children that you wanted to point out. I don't know where she's supposed to be with her kids, somewhere at a building, and she's just like, it'll just be a little bit longer and we'll be with your daddy. What I want to know is why she didn't pick the kids up and fucking run. Hell if I know. You're dooming your children to death by your own inaction. It's like, run, grab him by the arms and hightail it out of there. Don't just fucking sit there and let him kill you. Well, maybe they figured they were getting high enough or far away enough. They were on the street level. How are they getting high unless they they just smoked a hookah? I didn't think they were on street level. I figured they were on a building somewhere. No, they were on the street. Uh. But anyways, there were, there were a lot of great shots in this. You had the great view from inside a building as Godzilla's foot smashes through the roof. Yeah. You had the yeah. people diving into the alleyway as he goes past and collapses the building on them. Streets full of people screaming as his breath hits them and they vaporize. Just the great shots of Godzilla silhouetted against the city and the flames. There were some unforgettable shots in this. It was awesome. And then there was the toy fire truck that crashed over. Oh, God, that was so... I was like, wow, okay, you guys, I can't give you that. It's like they didn't have the money to crash a fire truck, so let's take a little toy fire truck and we'll do some very bad stop motion to topple it on its side with little action figure firemen on it. Yeah, that would have, like, I can't give it to them. That was so bad. Initially, they wanted to do this movie with stop-motion effects. I'm glad they didn't if this is how good their stop-motion effects were. Yeah, that one was so cheese while it was like, yeah, wow, that was bad. And then we have the moment of Muppetzilla fighting the clock. It pissed him off, okay? It was a really loud clock. But I just love just the shot of the hand puppet just kind of like snapping at it and then toppling it over. Fucking clock. I love the uh, the shot inside the main central political building where all the bureaucrats are scrambling to grab all their stacks of paper before they get out of there. Yeah. I must have my stacks of paper. My tax information is in there. <laughs> it, it is kind of ridiculous, but... I need my annual returns. <laughs> it's like, just leave your shit and go. Right. I mean, but you know, that also might have been like, you know, contact codes for the military and stuff like that. Because this, this is actually the room where we've seen them making all the plans. Okay, I'm sorry, but in everywhere else, if there's any kind of threat, the politicians are the first ones they get out. Yeah, that's true. And yet somehow these guys are just kind of hanging like, oh, let's see what happens. They only evacuated to a certain point because they genuinely thought the electric fence was going to stop him. So this entire area wasn't evacuated. Oh, they're so cute. And then we get to my favorite part, the reporters up on the tower. I like that. They see that they've gotten Godzilla's attention by their flashing camera lights, so let's keep taking photos of him with our flashing camera lights. And then you have the one reporter that, as everyone else runs, just continues to stand there broadcasting to everyone, and he actually ends it just before he dies with, This broadcast is over. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. I thought that was a good death. What? They were trying so hard to have their Hindenburg speech. It just felt so forced of, why, dude, get the fuck out of the tower, man. They brought their own deaths upon them because they were too stupid. I mean, what's the point of taking all those photos of Godzilla if the moment he destroys the tower, he's going to destroy your freaking cameras, too? So those pictures are meaningless. Meh, I don't know. I liked it. Eh. I just thought it was silly. I just, I just especially love him. Just he knows he's going to die. So let's just keep broadcasting and say goodbye, everybody. You know what? If you thought you were going to die, he'd go out whichever way you want to. Good night, everybody. Good night. And oh, fuck. I would just go, Bob Bowie, Bob Bowie. 
Howard Stern's penis. Then the jets arrive and they somehow chase Godzilla back into the water. I think it goes without saying that wires are visible. Yeah. I don't get what was up with the aim of these planes. Yeah, you know what? No, well, it comes up later in the remake, so we'll get to it. Well, these aren't heat seekers. These are just rockets. And I don't understand how they fired like over 20 rockets at him and not a single one hits. He's just standing there and they're just going past him, one rocket after another. He's even waving his arms around as though he's trying to bat him away. But it's just one rocket going after him, past him after another. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they were worried about ruining the suit so they didn't want to actually hit him. But could you not slip in some kind of a hint that they're actually doing something effective? Maybe they're really shitty fighter pilots. Yes, it's Cobra is fighting the fire. Cobra! <laughs> yes, Cobra that can't hit the broadside of a city. I love the final shot of the ruined city. Mm-hmm. Of just panning along this devastated miniature. And I've, I've been to Hiroshima and I've seen photos of what it was like. And that pretty much captures it. These are scars that are going to mark this land for a long time. Okay, so the next morning, Ogata and Emiko are both at the hospital, which is flooded with patients. Radioactive continuity for the win. Yeah, I love this scene because we actually see that there's consequence. People are freaking dying and are being poisoned. And I don't know if you realize, but that little girl who's looking over her dead mother, that was the mother from the street. Oh my god, I didn't even realize that. Yep, and that's her thats her remaining child. And I think the other one was the one with the Geiger counter on her. Mm-hmm. Just that shot of a child sitting there with a blank stare as someone's detecting the radiation off of them with a Geiger counter. That's just haunting. Yeah. And you have one of the girls who just like starts screaming when her mom gets taken away. Yep. And once again, this is stuff that this country knew firsthand less than a decade ago. It's just fascinating that they're kind of like purging this out of their system almost through this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Emiko corners Ogata in the stairwell and decides to tell about Eyepatch's experiment. And we finally flash back to the day in the lab where he introduced her to the Oxygen Destroyer, a device that dissolves oxygen and rapidly liquefies anything organic that's submerged in water. And I love how the special effects for this are basically a dissolve and throwing Alka-Seltzer in water. Oh, God, the Oxygen Destroyer. I was like, okay, but oxygen, I'm like, but water is also composed of oxygen. So would you not also destroy the water? Technically, it would just turn into hydrogen. Yeah. If you're destroying the oxygen, so you'd just be turning it into a big bunch of gas. I don't understand. I think it would be more interesting if it was something that increased the caustic nature of oxygen that made it more, that increased oxidization so that it would like eat through boats and it would eat through skin and stuff like that. That would make more sense to me than just, oh, we're liquefying the oxygen in liquid. I don't, it doesn't work. You know what? I let it go because I'm like, whatever, it's old school. It doesn't have to make any sense science. So... Yeah, but the Oxygen Destroyer, it hurt me a lot. I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. it. Yeah. Then the water in the tank shouldn't be there either. Exactly. And, of course, he tells her to keep it a secret because he doesn't want it to fall into wrong hands. I just love how he thinks that this is going to be, like, the most devastating weapon since the nuclear bomb when all it does is it only affects anything that's underwater. Yeah. I mean, technically, yes, this would probably, if you, like, dropped in your enemy's, like, fishing lanes and, like, killed their entire stock of fish, that would probably, but it's not like the water's going to be contaminated for years to come. 
I think it's almost like this has been his life's work and he's not going to let this go. He's like, no, this is amazing. And he's trying to convince everyone is how amazing it is. What was described to me was that he is a doctor who studies oxygen just in general. And this is something that he stumbled upon. Like the people who were studying the atom for energy purposes stumbled upon the way that you could use it as a bomb. And he's kind of fascinated by it, but he's also kind of scared by it. Yeah. I just don't understand his line where he says, it could totally destroy mankind. How? I can't even use the it's magic line because I don't know. Why is he doing this? Science! (laughs) For science! It's science here! And then I love how he says he's keeping it a secret because he wants to find a way that he can make this beneficial to mankind. This still doesn't make fucking sense for how it would destroy mankind. How do you turn this into something that would... I mean, is it like if you use it in a pot with a lobster, does it improve your soup stock? Can you make a good sauce out of it by dissolving things fully into the water? Yeah, but from my understanding is it makes it dissolve completely. So in fact, this lobster would cease to exist. But still, even if it dissolves the thing completely, there's still particles of it left in the water. So, I mean, as I said, you could make a good soup stock out of it. Not that good. Well, I mean, add a little, add a little rosemary. <laughs> yeah, no. It... Get Grandma's magic seasoning shaker. Magic seasoning shaker. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I love what they're trying to go with here, that he's a scientist who discovers a weapon and he doesn't want to fall in the wrong hands. That makes sense to me. But the specifics of the thing that he discovered make no freaking sense. Oh, God. It's so just like, it's science. It doesn't make any sense, but it's science. Back in the present, Ogata and Emiko visit Eyepatch. I keep wanting to say Dr. Surizawa, but I want to say Eyepatch so much more. Because it's awesome. They visit Eyepatch and ask him to use the oxygen destroyer. He's angry at her betrayal, refuses, and tries to destroy his notes. Ogata tries to stop him. They get into a fight, and Ogata ends up with a boo-boo on his head. Yeah, he spilled some ketchup on his head. Yes, it's all fun and games until someone takes a bloody blow to the head. <laughs> Everyone calms down, and Eyepatch apologizes to Ogata, but he's still filled with terror at the destructive possibilities of the device. He makes his case to the others, but they're still left with no other option. I kind of like Eyepatch's reasoning here that even if he destroys his notes, the information could still be tortured out of him, which would be a whole lot more dramatic if it were still something that would be a danger to all of humanity. I honestly think he's giving himself way more credit than he deserves for this. Like, he's going to unveil this thing and they're going to be like, "Uh uh-huh. Like, no one's going to care. It's like, I've found the key to beauty and eternal youth. It's like, it's a zit cream, honey. Come on. Yeah. It's like, this is the greatest invention. Like, he just must think. It's an ice cream maker. (laughs) Hey, that would be awesome. I would take that off over his water destroyer. And then I love how Ogata, from out of nowhere, just picks up this perfect headband that he has Emiko wrap around his head and over the wound. It's like, where did he get that? Is it it like a handkerchief that he just perfectly folded into this headband? Yeah, he just carries it around in his pocket like that. What, you don't? I I read somewhere, and this is just pure speculation, but I read somewhere that the headband is supposed to represent traditional Japan, which is now turning to the science that injured it in a plea for help. I don't know if that's complete BS, but okay. That would explain why he just perfectly picked it up and and like she donned it on his head like it was a Karate Kid movie. You have learned your lesson, (laughs) Daniel-san. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it's magic. And speaking of magic, the television set miraculously turns itself on and we hear a girls choir sing a prayer over shots of the ruined city and broken people with nothing left to hope for. 
other than the fact that the TV completely turned itself the fuck on. You know what? Eyepatch turned it on with his mind because he can <laughs> do that. Yeah. It's like the scene was getting boring. What's what's on on SpongeBob? <laughs> He's like, I don't want SpongeBob. That said, it's a great scene. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sappy as hell, but you have to admit that that song is haunting. Oh, yeah. Especially with the shots of the people laying in the hospital and the people gathered around the radio and just, just even the shots of the girls themselves in the school piled in there. Yeah. Singing this song. That, that was a good one. But at the same time, it kind of cracks me up that Patch is sort of like the song of the children is what brings him around. Yes. I'm like, of course it does. Yes, that's what inspires him to burn his notes and fine, I will help you. It's like, oh, do it for the children. Oh, someone please think of the children. And then Emiko goes into her dramatic sobbing moment. Well, because he's destroying his entire really important life's work. I know, but I love how she just looks at him and then bursts into sobs and falls onto the floor like, oh. <laughs> it was a little over the top, but you know, we've already talked about how melodramatic the acting is. Yeah, so you go with it. So anyways, all of our characters converge again on Ogata's boat for this make-or-break attempt at killing the beast. Eyepatch wants to dive down with his device just in case anything goes wrong. Because of the doctor's inexperience, Ogata demands to go down as well, so both the men in Emiko's life suit up. I love how it's like we have to have this perfectly convenient way of putting both men in Emiko's life in danger. Of course. And man, were diving suits ugly back then. Oh god, those things are like... It's like big inflatable rubber pajamas with a giant metal globe head. Yeah, the freaking helmets that they had. I was like, there's no way that was functional. It's a diving bell with limbs. Oh, and did you notice that their hands are basically uncovered? Well, they have things... Well, I mean, they don't really need to because as long as the wrists are strapped down, it's going to keep the thing pressurized. Yeah, but I'm like, still, you know what? That's probably not good to just... You know, whatever. Sure, just have your hands just free. Whatever. Yeah. Bitch is going to rip your finger off. You're fucking screwed. I love how by this point, Dr. Yamane doesn't really seem to care anymore about killing Godzilla. He's just there and it's like, okay. I don't care. He's, I just want him to like have started drinking at this point. I'm like, I don't even care. You all go do whatever the fuck you want. I'm not. I'm just, yeah. I hate you. I hate you. Oh, I don't even care. I don't even care. I don't even care. Eyepatch and Ogata make their way to the ocean floor and come upon a slumbering Godzilla. I love that he's slumped up against that rock wall like it's a lazy boy. He's like, I'm coming. It's Mellowzilla. <laughs> he just like took a huge bong hit and is going to take a nap. Look at those starfish. Which are actually sea stars now. What? Yeah. Yeah, I'll call them starfish. Yeah, me too. I don't accept Pluto as a planet, but I'll call them starfish. Yeah, screw Pluto. Lame-ass dog, too. He's a planetoid. He's like something I get on my butt when I sit too long. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to break Dana so hard. So. Uh, but I got to say, though, it is decent use of the diving footage, even though it is really murky and the baggy suits look ridiculous and they cut to these really obviously shot on the soundstage close-ups. Yeah. I've just cut to their faces with his eye patch peering out the... <laughs> I love when he's seething in the suit, and I'm like, wow, that's some good seething. I love how the music is so mournful here. Mm-hmm. It's like, we know someone's going to die here. Oh, I knew who was going to die. I know, but it's even about Godzilla. It's like, we're almost like, everything's going to end in death, you know? But anyways, Godzilla is suddenly up and walking around, 
we didn't really get to see him wake up. He went from sleeping to suddenly, oh, there he's walking past a reef. And they get the oxygen destroyer in place, and and Eyepatch gives Ogata the signal to rise to the surface. Halfway up, Ogata realizes that Eyepatch isn't following him. Gee, I bet you didn't see this twist coming. No, not at all, because the whole romantic triangle hasn't been beaten into the ground at this point. Right. Eyepatch activates the device and watches as Godzilla starts to thrash around. On the surface, Ogata is on the radio, and they retroactively recreate the Ben Affleck-Bruce Willis finale from Armageddon. I love you, Harry! Don't mention Armageddon. (laughs) But anyway, Serizawa cuts his line, making sure his knowledge of the oxygen destroyer dies with him. But not before telling Ogata, Oh, P.S., you and Emiko totally go and make babies and, you know be awesome. The water boils, Godzilla rises to the surface, roaring in pain and fury, and then he keels over. I mean, he literally just tips over on his side and sinks to the ocean floor where he dissolves into a skeleton and then into nothing. That was lame. They could have done so much with that because you think about it, something like, you know, remember at the end of Jaws when they blow up the fucking shark? I mean, they could have gone for broke here and just done something completely awesome and then they're like, oh, and he just tips over. I'm like, what the hell is the point of that? Yeah. And I I love how we have further evidence of how ineffective the oxygen destroyer is in that it's boiling all over the side of the ship and doesn't damage the ship at all. Dr. Serizawa slash Eyepatch is completely unharmed by it. The only reason he's killed is because he cuts his airline. But I mean, he's otherwise, he's just standing there watching the thing kill Godzilla. It doesn't do anything to him. So the oxygen destroyer is ineffective against metal or rubber or glass or bare hands. Or anything that's not Godzilla, apparently. Yeah. I don't understand the freaking oxygen destroyer. Yeah. Explain it to me, movie. Explain it. And then I love how you have the model of the boat with this huge geyser of boiling water next to it, and the boat's rocking all over the place, and then you cut to the shots of the actors on the boat, and it's all still and calm. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that since Eyepatch sacrificed himself for the greater good, oh God is never getting an Emiko's panties. Ever. Right. I mean, it's a bittersweet victory as everyone celebrates the death of Godzilla and mourns the sacrifice of Serizawa. Both Ogata and Emiko are bawling, but at least they have each other. And I love how he has that line, he wanted us to be happy, and that makes Emiko sob even more. She's like, I bet I hate you now. (laughs) Like, now we can be together. And then Professor Yamane wraps it up with the big moral message of, I can't believe that Godzilla was the only surviving member of its species, but if we keep on conducting nuclear tests, it's possible that another Godzilla might appear somewhere in the world again. Wise words, Yoda. Wise words. You know what? That was just funny. It was like, wow, obvious anti-nuclear message at the end of the movie is obvious for obvious reasons. Yeah, but you know, and then there's kids out there who say, hell, we can get more? Awesome. You know what? I don't think they were doing it to be like, hey, we can do a sequel. No, I know. It was more probably supposed to be a warning. It was the cautionary message, yes. Yeah. And now you know, and knowing is half the battle. So Evie, what are your final thoughts on the original Gojira? You know what? It's not bad, but the romantic subplot really just needs to go. It needs to go away, far, far away. And there needs to be more monster stomping things. It makes me happy. My final thoughts are this film has not aged well. There are some fantastic things in this film. I mean, but for every innovative special effects shot, there's another one that's just has not aged well. It looks like a little model. The pace is all over the place. I mean, there's a lot of great quick montage sequences and a great score, but at times it just slows down to a crawl. And most of those times are when they get to the romantic triangle. 
which just needed to die. But but you, what's fascinating about this film is the nuclear angle and how this is a depiction of nuclear devastation from the only society that has ever had to live through nuclear devastation. It's absolutely haunting at times, the scenes of devastation, and just the lingering sense that even though they've saved the day, the marks of this tragedy are going to be sticking around in the form of contamination and wreckage and and lost lives. It's a good film. It's very much affected by the limitations of its time, but it's a good film. So, Evie, you actually decided to watch the American cut of this film. Yeah, they retitled it Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I was surprised to learn that it was actually the Japanese themselves who came up with the Romanized form Godzilla. That wasn't something the American studios did. Yeah. Tell us a bit about it. What, what did they do for the American edit? You get a new character played by Raymond Burr, who's Steve Martin. He's a wild and crazy guy. I wish. That would have made this movie so much better. There's so much of it where he's just basically edited into the movie. And instead of, I guess, getting the actors back to do new scenes with him or to redo some scenes with him, they just kind of have people who have their back to the camera who are wearing the clothes that the actors would have worn. You get that. There's a new character that they make up so that he has someone who he has to talk to the entire time. He's supposed to be a friend of Eyepatch's. The only time you see him talk to Eyepatch is once over the phone. And oh my god, that is so obviously not the actor who played Eyepatch. <laughs> it's so badly done. And so much of that movie, because you know how we would just watch things play out on screen? There's so much of that where it's just exposition, 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 exposition. It's just him talking about it. Wow. And like they've either dubbed it or they've left it in Japanese and they didn't subtitle it. In those moments, they didn't think we needed explaining or? Yeah, like um, when there's the moment on the beach where they see that kid's brother wash up on shore. There's no subtitling before that. And there's actually no subtitling while they pull him out of the water. And I'm like, um, yeah, that's actually some useful information right there that he just dropped. But maybe, you know, no, just don't tell us. We can have him explain it in exposition later. Oh, and the thing is, he's a newspaper guy. And he gets to come along on, like, everything. Like, he's been cleared by the army. It's literally like Mary Sue fan fiction. (laughs) It's so bad, where it's like, Hello, Professor, can I please come on your uh, trip there? Because, you know, I've been cleared and that... Like, why? No! Tell him no! It's literally like watching someone who didn't really know what the original movie was about, kind of saw it once, and then just chopped him into the scenes and was like, okay, here you go. (laughs) It so does not flow at all. I mean, you lose the romantic subplot, but then you also lose a lot of other stuff. So it's just like, oh God, it's painful. Story-wise, what did they cut out? You lose a lot of the stuff with the family, and you don't get the last days of Dick Nixon. How much of the devastation did they cut out? You know what? I'm so totally blocking this movie because I'm like, I hate this thing so much. They add a lot more shots of him and it's like him reacting to the stuff. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Well, see, I did see this probably like 15 years ago. I remember at some point, didn't he get injured and he wakes up in the hospital? Yeah, well, it actually, it starts off with him injured in the hospital. And then they do like the backstory dance. And then we get up to the part where, you know, Godzilla has been destroying the city and he's in the hospital. And Emiko is like, oh, hey, what's up? It's just it's so he's so obviously randomly inserted in there. And it's just painful to watch. 
And is it literally like just shots of him on a soundstage where it's like, okay, he's just in the corner of this room and, oh, he's on the boat. They kind of tried to make it look like the soundstage, but there's very obvious times where it's clearly like he's not in this shot at all. Like you've just made a shot that you then inserted later in here to make it look like he's there, but he's not. It doesn't flow well at all. It doesn't work. No. So it's not an improvement. No. It's, well, the best part is he's actually recording this whole spiel of when Godzilla starts attacking the city for, I guess, like his editor or whatever. And I'm like, but it's on like tape. So when the building's destroyed, so is the tape. Like the photographer's on the top of that tower? Yeah. More, but the thing is this guy, you know, where as opposed to that guy was live broadcasting, this guy's just recording it on tape. No, but I mean like the photographers with the pictures in their cameras. Yeah. Those are going to get destroyed too. More or less, yeah. It was basically that same thing, except that the whole movie was told from that guy's point of view. And did they pretty much cut out the journalist from the original film? I think you see him a little bit, but he's more or less gone. Okay. So, I mean, that's just interesting that they cut out the the romance. Does that mean that Ogata's pretty much been trimmed down, or...? Like, everyone was almost kind of trimmed down to have more Raymond Burr. Did they mostly cut the kid out, too? Yeah, you didn't really get that much of the kid. Okay, so, but it's basically the movie is still there. It's just been chopped up to bits and had a stiff Canadian and a soundstage thrown into it. Yeah, it's really weird to watch. So it's not a recommend from you? Dear God, no. Run as fast as you can from it. If you can, scream while waving your hands while running from it. It hurt me. It hurt me, Noel. I watched it once, and it hurt me. Well, I've seen many packed-up dubs of many Japanese movies over the years, so I, I can believe that. Yeah, but this one was just like, it was painful. It was just like, and then this happens, and then he exposits for like five minutes. I hope it dies a slow, slow death with pain. <laughs> I will have my vengeance on that movie. Okay. All right. Well, one of the things I wanted to check out was Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, because when the remake came out, and we'll get to this kind of, a lot of people said that, you know, instead of being a Godzilla movie, it's more like they went back and did a version of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. But then I learned that Beast from 20,000 Fathoms actually predated the original Japanese movie and was actually an influence on it. So I wanted to watch it and just see how much it lined up with everything. And? Well, let's get a little synopsis here. Uh, in the North Pole, a nuclear test reanimates a dinosaur and frees it from the ice. It cuts a path of destruction along the Canadian and New England coastline, destroying fishing boats and small villages before it ends up at New York City. Among the main cast, we have an elderly paleontologist who has a young female assistant who falls into a romance with a nuclear physicist. Of course. Yep, exactly. Thankfully, there's no boat captain for her to have a triangle with. Uh, was Humphrey Bogart not available? And thankfully, he doesn't wear an eye patch. In fact, he's actually a French-Canadian guy with a thick French accent. Oh, dear God. Yes, but he's charming. He is dashing. I'll give him that. Uh, anyways, when the creature goes loose in New York City, he's punching through buildings and squashing cars. And there's even a bit where the military sets up an electric fence, though this one is actually successful at corralling him and chasing him away. Because I, I will say right up front that this creature is much smaller than Godzilla. It's probably the size of three double-decker buses strung along. And it's actually down on all fours instead of walking upright. Cool. And instead of nuclear contamination, he's covered with prehistoric germs and bacteria that infect anyone who gets too close to him or his blood, and in fact threatens to create a plague. And I thought that was actually a really great touch. Yeah, that'd be really cool. 
There's just actually this great scene during the climax when he's been wounded and the soldiers are actually following the trail of his blood and the soldiers are actually just gradually starting to get woozy and collapsing one after another. Really great, mysterious scene. And in the end, they have to take another weapon of mass destruction. This time, it's actually just a radioactive isotope that they have to use to kill him by firing it into his wound and killing him through blood poisoning. Nicely done. It's actually, it's a really good movie. It was interesting to see the ties. I mean, there, there's not as much of a nuclear devastation angle, though it is interesting how radiology does play a big part in the story and that it's what frees the creature and it's later what's used to kill the creature. Though it's treated as more of a positive thing, that it's something that can occasionally get out of control, but if we can learn to harness it properly, it can save us in the end. It's like a complete different angle than the devastation that's left in Godzilla. The problem is the majority of the film is people standing around and talking about things, and we only just get a couple of handful of shots of the creature until he gets to New York, but by then, it's the last 20 minutes of the movie. So it's like all just a build-up to get him to New York, and by then you only got 20 minutes before they kill him. Aw, that sounds like Jason Takes Manhattan. But it's actually still a really good movie because the characters and the dialogue are really good and snappily written and they're really involving, they're really engaging, they make you care about them. And even when you do see the creature, even briefly, it's still really, really good. I mean, this is Ray Ray Harryhausen doing his stop motion effects and there's a reason why Ray Harryhausen is a legend. His stuff is fantastic. His creatures have personality, they have weight behind them, there's logic to its devastation of the city, like the soldiers all get him cornered in an alleyway so what does he do he walks through a building and comes out the other side it's just it's a really really well done film it's different it is very different from both the original godzilla and the remake of godzilla but the influence is apparent it's definitely an influence on them why is it from 40 fathoms Twenty thousand. okay why is it from Twenty thousand fathoms i don't know because it's not it's from an iceberg it's from the north pole <gasps> it sits on a throne of lies <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's... Yeah, I don't know why it's Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I I have no idea. Um, You know what you say to that? It's, it's magic. It's magic, bitch. <laughs> That's right. No, you know what I say to that? It's a marketing department trying to sell a movie to kids by having an impressive-sounding title. There we go. I mean, it's based on a short story called The Foghorn. I don't think that was going to work. No, that wasn't going to do anything for anyone. Yeah. So anyways, this wraps up our section of the original film. Let's see how long we've been recording for. For part two of this episode, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay, party vote, party vote, party okay, vote. We, well, we're done with the party vote. Anyway, yeah. let's move on to the next bit. <laughs> we've just gone off the rails now. The schedule don't mean nothing because we're playing with our little hand puppets. You're like, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do the rest of this with hand puppet theater. <laughs> and anyway, in the next scene. No. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, boy. I've gotten so much laughter out of you in the last few minutes. <laughs> My face now hurts in a really awesome way. Awesome. <laughs>